Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, please, to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. There are four major prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. There are 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, the minor prophets are not minor prophets because they're insignificant. And the major prophets are not major prophets because they're more important. It is that the major prophets were more long-winded than the minor prophets were. The major prophets are considered major prophets because their books are longer. The minor prophets are considered minor prophets because their books are shorter. In the Hebrew Bible, you have the four major prophets in one book, and you have the 12 minor prophets in one book. So the Hebrew people, they make it kind of simple. Whereas we have divided them out uh, as individuals uh, for the times that they lived in and for the various messages that they gave. However, just because Micah is a minor prophet doesn't mean that what he has to say is of little importance. Micah presents one of the great texts of messianic prophecy that we have in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 5 in verses 1 through 5 this morning. And to give you just a little bit of a backstory, Micah lived at the time that Isaiah was prophet in Judah and Hosea was prophet in Israel. Now Micah spoke primarily to Judah, to the people of Judah and their capital city, Jerusalem, but he also had a word from God to the people of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and their capital in Samaria. Early in his ministry, in Micah's ministry, God sent the Assyrian army to conquer the northern ten tribes of Israel. Because of their evil and godless leaders, their corrupt priests, their worship of idols, and their complete disregard for the Word of God. For centuries, the northern ten tribes thumbed their nose at God, wanted to live their own way, do their own thing, be their own boss. God would send prophet after prophet to uh, try to correct the issue until finally God said enough is enough. And he allowed the Assyrian army under King Sennacherib to sweep down uh, from the east and from the north to completely conquer those northern tribes. At the same time, the southern two tribes of Judah 
had become spiritually weak and politically unstable. Righteous and godless kings succeeded each other over and over and over again. Good King Jotham was followed by evil King Ahaz, who was then followed by good King Hezekiah. And this caused the nation of Judah to teeter on the brink of collapse. Sometimes it's a good thing to have a good leader stick around for a while rather than to have a good leader for so many years and then a not so good leader for so many years and then maybe another good leader for so many years and so on and so forth. It keeps the people on edge. It keeps things in disarray. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what the future is going to hold. And that was the problem that they had in Judah. A good king followed by a bad king, followed by a good king, followed by a bad king. Micah's message to Judah involved three points, three principles, three truths. First of all, God would punish the sins of Judah. He would punish the Judean people. He would punish the Jews in Judah for allowing a godless uh, for allowing godless leaders to follow righteous leaders and then godless leaders to follow righteous leaders for also experiencing a corrupt priesthood. You could basically say they were following the same pattern that the northern ten tribes were following. But he was going to punish them for their sin as he had punished Israel for its sin. Second, God would be with them through the punishment and would eventually restore them to the land. And then third, God would fulfill his promise of sending to them a long-awaited Messiah. And that Messiah is Jesus Christ. So, let's take a look at Micah chapter 5. And I want you to put your thinking caps on this morning. And I want you to parallel what Micah is prophesying here 700 years before Jesus was born. I want you to parallel what Micah is saying here with the characteristics, with the attributes, with the, the life that Jesus Christ lived and see if they do not match up perfectly. Micah chapter 5. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. This is the word of the Lord. We ask his blessing.
upon the reading of the word. First of all, God, through Micah, told Judah that he would punish them for their sin. Look at verse 1. Gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with the rod on the cheek. King Sennacherib, who had conquered Samaria, the northern uh, nations of Israel, in 721 B.C., has now focused his attention on the southern two tribes in Judah. And he's laid siege to the capital city of Jerusalem. And so God says through Micah, prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves for what is about to happen. And they knew that conquest would be inevitable because of what Micah said. They will strike the judge of Israel with the rod on the cheek. In other words, they would conquer the nation and they would capture the king. However, King Sennacherib did not conquer Jerusalem at that time. God, the people repented uh, from the words of Micah, and God turned Sennacherib away from the siege over Jerusalem. It would be a little later, 135 years after this point, that Israel, that Judah would continue to sin against the Lord, continue to rebel against uh, his commandments, continue to uh, uh, venture into idolatry and a corrupt priesthood, so on and so forth. And for 135 years, uh, they would continue this until God said enough, and he then would send Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to conquer Israel in, in Judah in 586 B.C. Now, the underlying principle here is that the Lord allowed godless kings and godless nations to conquer his people for their repeated and unrepented sins. It's a warning. It was a warning to Israel, but Israel paid no attention. It was a warning to Judah, but eventually Judah paid no attention. It is a warning to every nation that God will hold the nation accountable for the sins that they commit against him. And it's a warning to all of us that God is serious about sin and serious about our faithfulness to him. Second, the prophet told Judah that God's punishment upon them would not be permanent. It would not be a permanent punishment. Look at verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. In many messianic prophecies, there is often an immediate fulfillment of and a future fulfillment. We spoke about this last Sunday. 
when we took a look at Isaiah chapter 9. There is an immediate fulfillment in order to give the people hope, but there is a long-term or a future fulfillment that would completely consummate God's plan for his people. God judged Israel through the Assyrians. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children were killed, carried away into slavery, scattered throughout the surrounding nations. Those who survived in the caves and in the, in the uh, uh, valleys, who were able to hide out from uh, the Assyrian armies, and those who um, went to other countries, fled to other countries to hide out there, when the uh, devastation was completed, they came out and they returned to their tribal lands. But many of them had intermarried in those foreign countries and brought those families with them. And those that were in hiding and then came out of hiding began to intermarry with uh, the Assyrian soldiers that had remained and those that the Assyrian nation had brought into the land to occupy the territory. They began to intermarry with foreigners. And so they became subject to foreign kings. This is in the north. This is in the northern ten tribes of Israel. God also judged Judah. And he judged Judah through the Babylonians. Again, hundreds of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children were killed, carried away into slavery scattered throughout surrounding nations. But the people of Judah had a different attitude than the people of Israel. After 70 years, God, through Cyrus, the king of Persia, decreed that the Hebrew people could leave Persia and go back home to their tribal lands. And so after 70 years in Babylon, the Jews returned to their tribal lands, but they remained racially pure. They did not intermarry with the Babylonians, and they did not intermarry with those who occupied the territory while they were gone for 70 years in Babylon. They remained racially pure, but... They were spiritually broken. Spiritually broken. Over the next 500 years, the Jews in the north became worldly, separating themselves from their brethren in the south. They built a temple to God in Samaria, and they worshipped him there rather than worshipping God at the appointed place in Jerusalem. The Jews in the south rebuilt the original temple in Jerusalem. They rebuilt the city walls around Jerusalem. And as a people, they became very strict in observing Mosaic law, very strict in the practices of their religion, Judaism, and very strict about their race to maintain racial purity. And so in the days of Jesus, you see this dynamic at work. 
In the days of Jesus, the Jews in the South are very conservative, very legalistic. Uh, they, they worship, they, their priesthood is uh, pious. Uh, they are very concerned about ritual and ceremony. But the ones up north, not so much. Not so much. It's kind of like going to church in the Bible Belt as opposed to going to church in California. <laughs> Folks in the Bible Belt are very serious about their relationship to God, very serious about their faith, very serious about their worship. California, not so much. And that's what, you've, that's what you see in the days of Jesus. The northern tribes, or what was once the northern tribes, Galilee, very laid-back folks, not very concerned about a whole bunch of stuff other than family and business, and that's about it. But in the South, a completely different attitude. Completely different attitude. And so for 500 years, this continued on. A succession of nations followed the Babylonian captivity. Greece conquered the Holy Land in 332 B.C. under Alexander the Great followed by Rome that conquered the Holy Land in 63 B.C. And so God had, as Micah says here, God had given his people up to foreign nations, as the prophet Micah had stated, but God had not abandoned his people. He gave them up to foreign nations, but he had not abandoned them. Third, the prophet Micah declared that God would provide salvation to his people through the birth of a great ruler. Look at verses 2 and 3. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And you need to understand the ruler is the same thing as a king. There will come a king in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until that time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return in the children return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide that is, they shall continue to live. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So, Micah said, God is going to punish you for your repeated unrepentant sin. But God is going to be with you in the punishment, and the punishment will not be permanent. Because God is going to raise up a king, who will bring salvation to you. And here you have the characteristics of this king who is to come. The, na the, the nations of Israel and Judah had been given over to Assyria and to Babylon and to Persia and to Greece and to Rome until the time that she, and here we're talking about the nation of Judah, not Mary, but the nation of Judah. If he had said that, that um, uh, 
Israel and Judah would continue to be subject to foreign nations until Mary gave birth to the Messiah, they would not have understood that. What they did understand was that Judah would be the nation through whom Messiah would come. And that had been uh, stated in prophecy hundreds of years earlier. So when Micah says that when uh, she, uh, who is in labor, has given birth, they understood that he was talking about the nation of Judah. When Judah brings forth the Messiah, then the remnant of his brethren will return to the children of Israel. Now there were many kings over Israel, but Micah spoke of a specific king, a specific ruler who would be unique among all of the other kings in Israel. And this is the description here that he gives. See if it not, does not parallel with Jesus Christ. First of all, he was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. He was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. It was the ancient home of Boaz, who married Ruth, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. It was the ancient home of Boaz. It was also the home of David, the greatest king in Israel. It would also be the birthplace of the greatest king ever to be given to the people of God. Who is that king? He would be born in the house of bread. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 6. Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. God has given you bread from heaven. Like the patriarchs of old, like the children of Israel of old, God fed them with manna from heaven in their 38-year wandering in the Sinai desert. Now God has given you heavenly bread. I am that bread that God has sent to feed you. Bethlehem, house of bread. Ephrathah. The name means fruitful or fruitful one. So the great king that was to come would be born of the house of bread and would be fruitful, prosperous. We may look at Jesus and say, well, you know, he wasn't very rich. Uh, he was popular, but he didn't have a lot of material resources. So how could we say that Jesus would fit the description of this great king and be fruitful? Well, listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet in the great song of the suffering servant, chapter 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord, Isaiah said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. 
He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify a multitude, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus fits the bill. Born in the house of bread. Born among a people fruitful. He is the bread. And he is the one who has become fruitful in the kingdom of God. Second, he would be a descendant of Judah. In verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. Bethlehem was in the nation of Judah. Out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel. So out of Judah, this great king would come. Now again, this was stated hundreds and hundreds of years earlier by Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, the grandson of Abraham, son of Isaac, and the father of the twelve tribes. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob blessed his twelve sons as he was getting ready to die. And to Judah, his son Judah, Jacob prophesied in verses 8 through 10, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down like a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Centuries later, God chose the tribe of Judah as the leader among the twelve tribes. He chose Jerusalem as the place where his temple would be built and where his people would come to worship him. And he chose David to be his appointed king over his people. You'll find this in Psalm chapter 78, verses 68 through 70. It would remain this way until Shiloh comes. Now the word Shiloh in Scripture can be the name of a town or it can be the name of a person. Here it is the name of a person because Shiloh is to come. The name Shiloh is very closely associated with the Hebrew word Shalom which means peace and rest. So the conditions in Israel would, and in Judea would stay the same until Shiloh comes. Isaiah has told us, as we looked at it last week, Isaiah has told us that the child that would become king of Israel would be known as the Prince of Peace. And he would also be the Wonderful Counselor, the Advisor, the Lawgiver 
which fits exactly the prophecy of Jacob when he announced to his son that from you there will come a great one, and the scepter, the king, shall not depart from Judah, nor shall the lawgiver depart from Judah until one comes who brings this peace. Jesus is again the one who fits the bill perfectly. In Isaiah chapter verses uh, chapter 9 verse 6 he said that the one who would come would be the prince of peace he would be the wonderful counselor Jesus said in Matthew 11:28 in the great invitation come unto me you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Shiloh in the Hebrew rest Third, he will perform perfectly the will of God. Look at verse 2 again. Out of you shall come forth, out of Judah shall come forth to me. The one to be ruler in Israel. This one who comes out of Judah would be subject to the authority and would live his life in perfect obedience to God. Unlike former prophets, unlike former priests, unlike former kings, this one who comes out of Judah will be one who is totally and completely committed to me. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 30, I can do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who has sent me. In chapter 6, in verse 38 and 39, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. Jesus said, I did not come to start a new religion. I did not come to overthrow Rome as a political messiah. I did not come to, to be a great teacher or philosopher. I came to do the will of my Father. Whatever that will may be in your mind, the will of the Father will be done in my life. He came to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of God's people. Now we could say that these characteristics fit a great ruler, a great king, someone like King David, who had his flaws, someone like King Hezekiah, who also had his flaws. However, Micah states that he will be one whose goings forth from, are from old, even from everlasting, in verse 2. And that's the fourth thing. Though he comes from Bethlehem, this great king is in fact an eternal king. He is come from eternity. He is God. He is divine. And we know this again and again because of the various titles that are given to this one who would come, both in Old Testament and in New Testament. He is called the Son of God. He is called the Son of Man. From Daniel, Jesus' favorite 
term in reference to himself, title in reference to himself. He's called the son of David. He's called the son of Abraham. He's called the Messiah, so on and so forth. All of these are messianic titles. All of these describe the one whom God would send to be the Messiah of Israel. And that one from Israel would be God in character, God in nature, God in essence. He would be radically different from every other ruler in Israel because he would be the son of God. All of these are descriptive of the divine ruler whom God would send to save his people. Now then, this ruler king would be sent by God to fulfill a specific purpose. Look at verse 3. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. He will bring the people of God back to God. He will bring the people of God back to God. But note, not all of Israel will return to God. Only a remnant. Only a few. That's what he says in verse 3. The remnant of his brethren shall return. Now we see this again in the ministry of Jesus, do we not? When Jesus began his ministry, great crowds uh, of people would come to hear him. They would bring their sick. They would bring uh, their children. They would bring uh, individuals who were demon-possessed and so on and so forth. He would heal them. He would teach them. He would feed them. He would minister to them. But there came a time in his ministry when Jesus got serious about the matters of the kingdom of God and the lives of people. And he began to get down to what we would call brass tacks, where the rubber hits the road. And he would tell them that, that the ministry that he was to conduct was to bring people into the kingdom of God. And they had to be, they had to be converted. They had to, they had to repent of their sins. They had to believe in him as the son of God, as the Messiah. And John in his gospel says from that point on, people turned away from him and followed him no more. There were only a few. Out of the multitudes that came to Jesus for help, there were only a few that stuck with Jesus and believed in him as the true Messiah of God. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, that's everyone, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes, that's the remnant. Whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Many Jews in Judea and Galilee believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but many, many more did not. And when push came to shove, they cried out to have him crucified as a blasphemer. He did bring a remnant back to God. but he's also brought a great multitude of people to God throughout the entire world. His purpose was to bring the remnant to God. But in verse 4 it says, his purpose was also to shepherd the people of God. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends 
of the earth. What is he saying here? He is saying that the one whom God would send as a king would also be a shepherd to God's people. And he will nourish them in the kingdom of God. He will feed their soul and their spirit of the truth of God. And he will glorify God. He will bring honor and glory uh, to the majesty of God in the hearts and the minds of the people. And they will live. That's what the word abide means. They will live in him. And they will continue to live in him. And he will continue. He will continue. He will be great until the final age to the ends of the earth. He will feed the people of God spiritual food. He will reveal to them the truth concerning the Heavenly Father. He will instruct them in the ways of God. And he will teach them of the kingdom of God. He did then, and he continues to do so now. Amen. Finally, his purpose is to be their peace. Verse 5. Notice what he says. This one shall be peace. He's not going to bring peace. He will be your peace. And that's consistent with Isaiah chapter 9. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. He came to give us peace with God, but He also came to be our peace with God. Amen. Isaiah called Him the Prince of Peace. He said the chastisement for our peace was upon him, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. No one but Jesus in all of the chapters and verses of Scripture, no one but Jesus fills the description of Micah's great ruler king of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. At every point in his prophecy, he points to the one greater than the tribe of Judah, though he would come from Judah. He points to one greater than King David, though he would be a descendant from David. In his prophecy, he points to one greater than all of the prophets, and there were some great prophets in Israel, greater than the lawgiver Moses. He's the one whom God promised would come to save Israel and to save us. He's come to save Israel and to save us. He will return to complete that salvation when he establishes his millennial kingdom following the great tribulation that is yet to come. So when you read Micah's account, Micah's prophecy of the coming Christ, and you read... Uh, what he says in the text in chapter uh, 5, verse 2, You Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you will come forth a great ruler. Don't think that all he is speaking about is the baby in the manger in Bethlehem. Because he speaks much, much more about who that baby is, what that baby would become, and who that baby would be to you and to me and to the people of God. Let's stand together. David, come and lead us 
as we sing a song and dismiss for Christmas dinner. It just gets better and better, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It does. Wonderful sermon. Well, thank you. Wow. It is so good to be here. And we're facing a week with great possibilities. I don't know if you go into a week looking at it as, oh no, but look at it as every day walking in an adventure with a living God Amen. who loves us. Mm-hmm. And with everything going on in the world, our life in Christ can get better and better as we look to Him and that peace that you talk about. He is our peace. Yeah. Yeah. And He comes. And this week, when the landscape of uncertainty surrounds you, which it will, we know that, and we'll face these obstacles that seem to come our way, may this anthem come to our hearts. Mm-hmm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, who was not an accident, who was not a last-ditch effort to save us from a plan that was a total failure, who was not just another man, another great teacher, another great insurrectionist who tried to lead a people out from under the yoke of an oppressor. He is the great King whom you have sent to be our King. He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is our Shepherd who feeds us. And He is the reigning Lord who is coming back for us when that appointed time comes. We look forward to His appearing and we're ready to go whenever we hear the trumpet sound. But until that time, Father, continue to minister to us through Your Holy Spirit, through Your Word, through brothers and sisters in Christ, through the fellowship of Your church. Continue, Lord, to encourage us to be about uh, the work of the prophets of old and the apostles of new, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone that we come in contact with. And what a great opportunity to do so when the world celebrates his birth. Now, Father, we pray your blessing upon uh, the dinner that is to follow. Bless each and every one who partakes. Bless the hands that have prepared it. May our fellowship be sweet uh, to each and every one, and may it be pleasing in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, I ask, and all of God's people said, Amen. Let's go and fellowship together around the table. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.